get an all in and, and guess this rate. Like decentralize everything. Everybody is so extremely focused on centralizing everything in the capital. Like make the capital like the main hub for everything to take place, but centralize your industries to different districts. Yes, that would that would make total sense. <laughs> Yes, 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 good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world watching Social Confos. Glad you could join us on an interesting day in Suriname. Day a very hot day. The day two of the Suriname Energy Oil and Gas Summit. And we've dedicated this week's episode towards the oil and gas industry. So that's a great way to kick it off. I first have to say, if you haven't, connected with Social Convos yet, make sure to connect with Social Convos on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to Diego Amaralis YouTube channel to see all the videos live when they happen. And with that, I bring it to you, Diego. Let's, take, let's talk a bit about today's topic. Definitely. So we're bringing up this topic because we kind of want to every now and then touch on topics that are very current, very relevant. It might not be relevant in a few months' times, but because there's an event, and I'd say international event today around the oil and gas industry, we thought we share our unqualified take as two individuals who have actually almost nothing to do with the oil and gas industry from a engineering, from a business, from a education perspective, but we will try to give our yeah, takes based on our experience because both of us went today to, took a quick walk around, see what the developments are who here. We did go to the delicate meetings because we won't register for that. Just checked out the exhibitions. But you can hear now and then people talking about what's in store for us and why is this relevant? Why, why is there so much hype around the oil and gas industry nowadays, Jean-Luc? especially in Suriname and okay. the region. So, so let's give a little bit of a, a background for those who are less familiar with the oil and gas. And I want to be careful because the title of today's session says the take on the oil and gas industry. We're going to narrow it down to just Suriname, right? I think that's, that's I think, the most important. Yeah, emphasis on an unqualified thing. Okay, because <laughs> in, otherwise... In Suriname. Otherwise, you can have a very long take, and that could be a qualified or an unqualified take, but a very long take in the oil and gas industry. But let's focus on Suriname. So I think what's important is that in the 80s, our state oil company, Stats Oli, was born. I think that's a very important step in the oil and gas industry in Suriname. And it's kind of our pride. Having our own state oil company, the slogan is also, which literally translated, you have to believe in yourself, which is a pretty big statement for us. It's, it is our pride. It's one of the pride possessions that we have is that we have a state-owned oil company. And I think it starts there. That's, that's the starting point. For years, our oil company was onshore oil. So basically drilling oil from the, sh the, the 
the, the, the piece of land that is Suriname. And only recently, and we're talking about the last decade, offshore uh, oil has really come up as one of the main potentials for us. Because there is a lot of oil in front of the Guyanas. We have to take a little bit of geographical context as well, because to our west is Venezuela, which is already known as a renowned oil state. Next to it is Guyana, which is our big brother, our small, nah, basically our big brother in certain sense, a small brother in another context. But also there is some rivalry between Suriname and Guyana, which luckily for us now is more of a brotherly situation, which is, which is really good. And then we have Suriname. There is also French Guyana next to us, which is an overseas department of France. It still falls under the French government system of France. And they have a completely different approach to oil and gas, the French, and the, that Guyana and Suriname have for different reasons. So I think that's important to have the context to know that Venezuela, of course, is a big oil player when it comes to South America and the Caribbean. And we basically have a couple of basins, which you can say are in the similar route across the ocean north of these countries. So that's where the offshore comes from. I think one of my close friends, Mark, was had to make a decision whether or not he would study offshore as a civil engineer. And that was back in, I think, 2007 or 8. He had to make that decision to master in, in, in one of the two. So it was already a big thing back then and something to consider. And we currently have a lot of contracts with big oil companies, with big oil players. But we're still in the discovery phase and even the bidding phase in some situations. Whereas Guyana, our neighboring country, actually already has produced their first batch of offshore oil. So that's to have a little bit of a, a context historically where we are now. We have had several discoveries. If I remember cor correctly, it's around eight discoveries already, offshore discoveries in, at the, on, on the coast of, of Suriname. There has been some nearshore activity. They don't call it nearshore. Near, near I think it's a shallow something. Shallow like that. something, but it's basically nearshore. And also, there currently is a bidding going on for other oil blocks to discover if there's oil available. So that just gives a, a general, I think, a general understanding where we are in the oil fields right now. And that means we're on the forefront of becoming a pretty big player in the international oil business. And then there's one thing to consider and take into context as well. Our state oil company has a top of the line refinery, but that refinery is focused on onshore oil. So there's a whole other refinery business for offshore oil, which still has to be developed when it comes to the oil and gas industry in, in Suriname, as well as the local content. As, and with local content, it's not like in the field of what we usually talk about as in creative local content. Yeah, we need it's to elaborate local. on that in a bit. So as well. there's this local content as in companies that will serve the big oil and gas companies that approach and come to Suriname. So before we go to local content, because that is an interesting topic, I do want to dive a bit deeper in, but 
you set the stage there, especially with the highlighting, you know, Venezuela had been one of the big producers. And now Guyana is basically a step ahead because they are a step ahead because they're already extracting. And you can see or take stock of, you know, how potential developments can go. Like Venezuela is, you know, they've been, had, had a peak, but then a, a quick downfall as well because of the way the, that industry was managed. And I'm not very qualified to, you know, take a deeper economical or political look at it, but it has had an impact on the nation in a later stage. Even Trinidad at one point had offshores, I think, and they peaked for a, a decade or something and then quickly diluted again. So I'm cautiously looking at Guyana it's, as well, you know, how that, plays, how that plays out in real time because it is the closest it's been to us and especially this. And now we are at the, you know, the, the precursor of what's to come and how the nation and the companies are going to play into that. But we have, we have saying, to learn from Trinidad. I think we, in this case, we have to learn from Trinidad. And the reason why we have to learn from Trinidad is because they have been through this process. And over the past decade, a lot of Trinidad companies who made a lot of money successfully in the period that they were benefiting from the industry, they are expanding to other countries to diversify their portfolio, to connect, to have business in other Caribbean countries as well. And it's really interesting because you have to look at the infrastructure, but also the relationship between different countries and the European countries. Like, and, and I'm going a little bit off topic here, but it's very important to know when you're discussing on, let's take a similar approach. It's important to know that there are Caribbean countries that are commonwealth that have been ex old colony colonies. Yeah, that, of, that includes of the UK of the and British. Guyana. Yeah, yes, they are exactly. You have uh, Caribbean countries that were under the French system that became departments. And then you have the Spanish speaking countries and the Dutch speaking countries, which have very different structures from the English-speaking countries and the French colonies, so departments. So I think that's something as well to, to look at, especially when it comes from a policy perspective. And I think looking at Trinidad is a good way to look at it because if you're going to look at Venezuela, there's a lot of political importance there. So it's it's very hard to look at Venezuela if you're not and, going and, to and, and also from a scale perspective right from a scale perspective I think well, like Trinidad and Guyana are much closer in scale to a country like Suriname yes definitely but don't okay. underestimate the scale of, of Guyana at the moment like where they're already at and I think one of the things that is definitely going to be discussed today in this in this unqualified take is like how much does society actually benefit from it? So how much does the average inhabitant of a country benefit from the oil and gas industry? Because we've seen the impact for Venezuela. Yeah, right? It's not really that there are people there. They have benefited, but it's not like 
that saved the country or propelled the country into an uh, in Trinidad, right? Because you, you you mentioning like the the companies that have been in the industry basically expanding their portfolio. So does it pay it forward to the local economy? And you you mentioning local content before. I'm curious to to elaborate more on that. So when you say local content, and I've been through uh, several of the boots, and you hear this term come up a lot, local content, and a lot of them talk about that education, the safety certification that's go with, go with it when you're going to work offshore, when you're going to a rig. So how much of that in that context qualifies for, you know, the average citizen as a work opportunity, as a business to do that? And how will that flow back into the local economy? Okay, so here's, here, there's several things that are interesting. First of all, don't underestimate the quality of the technicians in Suriname. I think that's one of the things that's underrated. One of the most popular schools, high schools in Suriname is not it. It's the Technical Institute. It's one of the most popular schools. We have a lot of technical talent in Suriname. I'm not worried about the tech jobs. I actually think we are not fully prepared, but we'll get a lot of our young tech students will get amazing opportunities in the next 10 years. So if you're in the tech field, I would, I mean, as a technician, I would educate yeah. myself. because Any type of engineering, of, mechanical, anytime, electrical, any, anytime of Any kind of engineering, you're set. If you live in Suriname, you're a student at the moment, a high school, high school student, you could be set for life because in, the, in, in this industry, and I actually experienced it. I was on a flight to Guyana, or actually a flight to the U.S., but going through Guyana. And I was on a plane with several Surinamese engineers who were going to go to an offshore rig in Guyana to work there. So there's already opportunity there. So I think from, a, from the tech side, I'm fully confident that we have an educational system that might not be perfect. But could be suited. But that's on especially low entry jobs. And then we get to the mid level and the high level entry jobs. That's where it gets difficult. And then we're not even talking about suppliers. Like when when we realize like some of the big players in Suriname, big companies, we look up to them, are telling us like, hey, we don't have the resources to supply this emerging market. We don't have the resources to supply. We have to collaborate with other international companies to be a preferred supplier for the oil and gas industry. And that really comes down to two things. Resources, having enough people to serve, but also the quality of work and the educational level of the type of work that we need to do. When you mentioned supplier there, like what, what should I understand under supplier? Like Anybody that's supplying. Workforce. So so it could be workforce supply. It could be technical supply. It could be even food and beverages. Yeah. It could be even be communications. It could be any kind of supply that the companies, the oil and gas industry hires you to provide product or a service. So any 
kind of supplier. All right. So then I went to draw a parallel because we, we, we mentioned local content in the content of, you know, you just mentioned suppliers providing any type of supplier, workforce, engineers, there's opportunity there. If you draw the perspective to the, the rest of business and in more in our case, our specialty of the different type of local content we, we usually talk about, how do you see that relationship with that type of content in relationship to the local content they talk about in the summit? Like, is, is it is it bad branding that they, they call it local content that people get confused? Because the, the first time I hear it, I, I, I go different direction. No, the only people that confuse are the people in the creative space and the creative space is not that big and the creative space is not as important as from an economic perspective. So that's that's the kind of defy that that I think I'm struggling with the most is that in one sense, the money will be in in this industry. That's something you have to understand. So if you're like, if money is important to you, if you want to see Suriname get wealthy from from a financial perspective, I think it's a really important thing that you understand the market because the amount of opportunities that are available are enormous. But then again, they're at such a high level that we don't locally have enough people that can pick up those those tasks, can pick up those those qualifications. So what ends up happening is that people get get bought in, brought in from abroad and you get this kind of expat society with people that have that expertise their respective fields. So if you don't dive into creating opportunities for us as a country, we're going to lose out. That's what happens in Guyana. That's what happened in a lot of other oil industries and countries is that the, the middle, the, 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 average, the, the average society kind of member doesn't, doesn't get involved in this kind of business. First of all, they don't understand it. And when they don't understand, if they don't understand it, they don't have the network to get in. And even if they have the network to get in, they often don't have enough capital to join in as well because this is a cruel situation, right? You have to have a certain amount of capital to be able to buy your way in, kind of almost. Yeah, because it, it, it kind of looks like the, the stage is set basically for very corporate level and there's very niche industries because I, I walked around and you, you hear about organizations, about companies that are very niche, like data collecting to to reporting and you don't hear about this in the, the, the regular media. The, the oil and gas stuff is coming. It's being broadcasted all over, but how many people actually understand and how do you see that we don't fall into the trap of, you know, that maybe something like it's going on in Guyana and Trinidad? Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's, you have to understand that you have to be at a certain international level to compete. And that most likely US-based oil and gas companies will work with US-based contractors. It's, it's like, unless you're really good, like really, 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 really good, and they have the guarantee that you deliver the same quality and in the same style that they prefer it, so it's going to be hard to get in. People have to understand that. And that when you talk about branding, local content from a creative perspective is even lesser known. So I don't even think that that is 
something that is of relevance to this industry at all. They don't really care. And yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you have to, one thing that I think people don't understand is this is an industry that from an environmental perspective, it's really difficult to talk about because like you're making millions of dollars like by extracting important minerals from earth in the sense of if you don't know what the, the environmental consequences will be from taking oil and gas out of the bottom of the ocean, practically, and how that will impact the environment. Like, does the ocean go off balance? Can we consider getting floods? Can like, I don't know if you know the oil industry in, in the Netherlands, for instance, in the, in the north of the Netherlands, and the impact that's there. So for, I think for the Actually, last... I'm not familiar with that, so... Okay, so for the last decade, for the last decade, uh, the, the gas extractions from a certain area within the north of the Netherlands is having impact on the actual living environment of, lo of local inhabitants. So it's right, 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 right. And from a political perspective, it's constantly being said, yes, we have to research that. We have to research if it's really the gas industry that's causing these kind of problems. We have to research that. And basically, it keeps getting at research. There's never so, a moment where they say like, okay, we're going to stop doing this. So on, on that point, if we're talking about we don't have the resources as suppliers, right? Not, not enough capacity and also offshore companies preferring to work with, with these experts, they're getting their own contractors, bringing them in to work here. How much does the country itself that's kind of ha has these blocks, has these regions benefit from it? Because if you can provide your local people, your local content to get that economy circulating, to get that cash flow circulating back to the economy, what's left? Or what other options are there to get this? Because the risk is being taken by these offshore contractors. So, so, so what's being left? How, okay. how sh should so I understand or see that? So let's start with the silver, the silver lining. So the silver lining is that even though we as a country won't necessarily benefit directly from it, there is a still indirect benefit from it. First, if the oil and gas industry is productive in Suriname and it's, it's efficient and it works and people pay, the government gets an increase in income as well, which makes it easier for the government to operate, which make, makes life in general better in Suriname. Let's be honest. So if there's a, a positive developments in the oil and gas industry have a direct impact on lowering inflation, easing the need for, for dollars and, and euros in Suriname. So those, there's an indirect benefit. If our government profits from the oil and gas industry, the living situation in Suriname just gets better in general. That's so from, so, from a very macro perspective. Yeah, bro. Yeah. All right. Yeah? Yeah, we'll go on before so, I interrupt. And then, and then, and then the, second, and the second thing, you have to understand is that even though there will only be a small amount of companies locally that will be able to 
to join and be part of the industry, that company pays taxes. That company has employees that earn more. That company gets experts from abroad. And these people and these companies, they sort of indirectly invest in the Surinamese economy as well because they have to buy or rent houses. They have to go out and eat somewhere. They have to spend their money during their, their, their free, their leisure time. And so indirectly, local businesses will profit from that as well. Yeah, I, I, I understand. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. But the, the degree at which it impacts it, because coming back to our previous examples, as in Trinidad and Venezuela, Guyana is in that process now. Like, it's the same situation that played out, but how long does it last? And look at the inflation we have in Venezuela. So what, what's the, 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 so the you have rope? to have a smart, no, you have to have a smart government. You have to have a smart government that understands like you should reinvest and how to reinvest. And I think that. So should, should, should we look at an example like Norway, for example, such as, cause they, they benefited a lot from their oil okay. reserves offshore. So I'm going to be and, very, very brief about, and this is a really unqualified take, but I do really feel that way about it. And we've had something. In, the Surinamese national culture is very different from the Norwegian Baltic, kind of like the Northern European culture. Yeah. Well, I want to put emphasis on that. So you cannot replicate a structure of way of work for a European country and implement it in the Caribbean or in South America. It just won't work. There are too many factors that are different. So I think that's a very important lesson for us that we should learn. You can take positive impacts, positive studies and learnings from, from that situation, but you have to be very careful about it. So I think that's the first thing that we have to consider. The second thing that we have to consider is cultural differences within the region. So partnerships that Norway is able to close out with their neighboring countries and the EU, it doesn't work the same way in the Caribbean and in the CARICOM. So it would be nice to say like, hey, we could approach it like that. But there are different factors that you have to take in consideration that make it more difficult to replicate it or even that it just doesn't work. So for those unfamiliar, with that aspect, because the, the, the reason I brought up Norway, aside from the culture differences is, and that was, I think, pre-EU, right? Or in the process of that, the European Union got that. So I think they were busy in the 80s and 90s already during that process. And they kind of pulled that, that income into a wealth fund. But that's also took like, yeah, I don't know how many generations, but decades to build over time. And then it comes to, it's funny that we were talking about the topic we talked about la last week on time preference. It's, it's the time preference thing, because if the money flows immediately, looking at a country like Venezuela and Trinidad, you have a rapid rate of development, but then 
you can't keep up with it, and then it suddenly goes bust. You do Deep. understand that previous governments, previous governments in Suriname had to almost wanted to give away rights and yeah, bidding and rights for loans to pay out salaries for the government, right? So, yeah. I mean, if you're talking time preference, you know what the current situation is. And that's why I'm saying, and to be fair... Exactly, the, the, on, on a cultural yeah. level, yeah, that, that's yeah, understandable. And, yeah. And that's something you have to take into consideration. I'm not saying something is right, I'm saying wrong. It's just you have to take that in consideration. And you also have to take in consideration that before oil and gas, Norway was already in a different position than we are currently in. So you can't compare apples with oranges in the sense yeah. that we have to realize, and I think that's the hardest part. We have to understand that we're not Trinidad. We have to understand that we're not Venezuela. We have to understand that we're not Norway. We have to understand that we're not Dubai. So these are things that we have to understand that our system is structured differently. We have to understand that what changes we need to make that would benefit our country. And it's really hard to make changes to benefit your country if there are other influences available that are not geared towards our country first. And I think that's something that we have to address and keep on addressing that if we really want to do it properly, the income from the oil and gas industry should be, there should be some level of responsibility or accountability from the government to provide insight and transparency in, in what it will be invested. And there will always be discussion about it, but at least provide the situation that it's clear how the incomes are going to be redistributed within in our country. Yeah, transparency and basically communication. And then I want to come back to a point, you know, you mentioned we've kind of survived on very extract, extractive industry, oil being one of them onshore, which is very small. If I look at the surface area, what I say is saw from the maps versus the, the potentiality that that's offshore, right? And the, the other extractive industries are, you know, mining, the, the mining industry. Those are more hard, hard extractives. So looking at this extractive industry, I feel like countries like, small countries like Suriname and basically dependent on these extractive industries are basically on life support because of the extractive industry. Like what parallel industry not taking away from this industry or not the focus can we take to be less dependent on it? Do you, do you see? But before well, you... There, well, there's several, but go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, be, be, before you go, because I think what it was a stats only booth, there, there was a, a nice graphic with some 3D print, metallic print on it, and they, they Photoshop some skyscrapers within it between the capital city. And why did they paint that picture? And how did you interpret that picture? Because, you know, you had a Dubai comparison back in the day, but let, let's leave that behind. Okay, so I'm going to be second. completely honest. And this all ties back to, I think Rajiv asked the question once, how would I develop Suriname? Right? So, 
and this is really me talking from a nationalistic perspective. We have so much land in Suriname, undeveloped land. And I'm going to tell you what would be the right approach, in my personal opinion. And I'm also going to tell you why that is not going to work. We have so much land. We can easily, easily, with good urban planning and development, develop our districts in a way that we don't need skyscrapers for the next 50 or 100 years. We can easily focus on the different districts of Suriname, focus on the different needs of not only our country, but the region, South America, Latin America, the Caribbean, even the Americas, even Europe, and create different districts with different functionalities. And within each district, have all the infrastructure that it's a self-sustaining district. Right? And with that, you would create a situation where you don't need high rises. You don't need to go as high as possible. The reason it doesn't work is there's a lot of ground in Suriname that has already been either bought by someone or given to someone. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of undeveloped land in Suriname, which is no longer state-owned and is owned by someone. And those people will not be willing to give up that piece of land for free and not even necessarily for the development of their own country. Right. Regardless, right. regardless how they got it, whether or not they paid hard cash for it or it was technically given to them. Well, on the other side, the registry is so bad that it could be misplaced, but let's not speculate here. No, it's, it's just, just, that's the biggest, that's the biggest issue. I mean, there's, I, one of the things, let me, let me give you an I, I actually like, want to, yeah. aside from that yeah. reason that it might not work, I, I, I want to abstract it more. Like if you look at, cause you did urban planning and social studies, right? From a... E. No, I did urban planning and development from a cultural and social society. Okay, from a cultural perspective. Yeah. yeah. And maybe yeah. that might also shed insights because as cities develop, as capitals, as major cities develop, because you're talking about each district becoming its own kind of superpower, right? Be basically decentralizing the, the, the nation in powerful districts or states. So... Get an island... Get an oil and, and, and gas district. Like, decentralize everything. Everybody is so extremely focused on centralizing everything in the capital. Like, make the capital like the main hub for everything to take place, but centralize your industries to different districts. Yes, that would, that would make total sense. And the reason I bring that up as, you know, counter argument, just thinking out loud here, looking at how major cities develop, even in the developed countries, a lot of people from the less populated cities move away from those cities to, if, if, if they're looking at the US, for example, to something like New York, to something like California, because they, they see opportunities. So even that region is getting thinned out. And I'm not sure how the situation is in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm not too familiar with the geography there, but major cities 
get that major because of that centralizing natural tendency to develop and go for opportunity. So is this not a law of the evolution of societies and cities that eventually plays out over time? Yes, because it's it's a financial decision. And that's the biggest problem. It gets so money focused. And I'm just going to be very, very blunt about this. It gets so money focused that so it's so much about the money and the profit that focusing on how society develops itself in a healthy, sustainable way, it's kind of like, and, and that's the thing, like the sustainable development goals, everybody should know them. And not everybody should know them to say like, hey, I make a lot of profit. I have to do some corporate social responsibility. Let's let's use the the sustainable development goals. No, it should you shouldn't have to announce it. You shouldn't have to broadcast and say like, hey, look, I'm a good company because I'm 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 doing this of sustainable development goals. No, it should be part of your culture. It should be part of your strategy. It's not like, oh yeah, I have to do it because it's one of the sustainable development goals. No, it's actually doing good for society. Right? It's it's not because it's a sustainable development goal that you just put a put a a, a plaque on on the side yeah, of your a flag and yeah a flag. No, you actually have to commit to it and actually do better. And and that's the whole reason why these conspiracy theories on it being like it's a way to control us because there are companies that say they do it but they actually don't. And yeah, the conspiracy theories look at those companies and see like. See, you're just trying to control us. Actually, no, they're not trying to control you. They're actually the the, the sustainable development goals are are developed from a from a good place from people that actually want to bring build a better society. But it's often people that kind of use it to to wave around and say like, "Hey, I'm doing this," while not actually working towards making the world a better place. And and that's where it, there's that's where the disconnect is. And that, that's all the whole idea with oil and gas as well. It's like I had to discuss with somebody who was actually an industry expert, and I was like, "Why don't they like the 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 mining industry used to have a situation where they would invest in local community, right? So if you're in your your business is somewhere, you invest in the local community, you build local schools, you build local roads, you have to help develop the community, and then." There were actually studies done by these multinationals that those kind of systems, they don't work. So they decided we're just taking it out. And then the government is like, oh, yeah, okay, we don't care about that either. So you can take it out as long as you give me a bigger cut. And then you get into a situation where society keeps on getting underdeveloped in, in the sense that the money that's being used in the industry. Yeah, it's flowing to a narrower it's, path. It's, it's flowing to a narrower path instead of flowing to an actually broader path. And the other argument, because you're bringing up the, 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 the conspiracy theorist idea, the other argument that often comes up is, you know, the, the developed world kind of went through it this way and that's how they got the position they are, right? And, and that now they're imposing these rules or these restrictions and all these things and then the lesser developed countries can't walk the same path. And then you get this tension between, you know, uh, 
ideas and how, how that's supposed to go further. Okay, so let's go to the counter argument. Yeah. The reason why these Western countries use these methods is because they've learned from establishments in the past. Like they've learned from societies 300, 400 years ago. And we have to learn from societies 200, 340, 400 years ago as well. Like there have been some major empires and we don't look at those teachings of those. So we let's play out that, that history. Yeah. Let's play out yeah. that history. Well, I'm so, not familiar with, with most of them, to be honest. I know there were the Greeks and the Romans. Like I haven't studied, there are actually books on it, on why yeah. empires fail and the different stages that they go through. Yeah, I think that there's a short video as well and a book of Ray Dalio and the rise and fall of the empires through yeah. different stages, right? And it kind of goes to, you know, you have the big development stage, they become a superpower and they, they get to that superpower position because they managed to either first control either military might or resources because they found certain resources and then they could have produced that easier. And then as the military might increased, they managed to build better infrastructure. And as you get better infrastructure, you can facilitate trade. And because you have better trade routes, other countries will, or other regions will start using those trades. So you can generate income from that. And then you get the, the, the talk about like, what, what is money from the previous episode? That starts going into play. Who you who he who controls the money kind of controls the flow of power, and then they start going into the debt-based system, and eventually those resources kind of dilute. You you can't pay off the military anymore, and that kind of slowly crumbles as another empire kind of slowly rises and kind of facilitates that in the same way again. So I'm curious to know from you where do you think the smaller countries basically satellite around these, these bigger countries but because that's usually doesn't get this described in history and how can we think about that like the, the smaller regions when they satellite around these big empires you have to you have to consider like do you want to be the best kept secret or not yeah right that's that's so so from a from a center periphery theory, like if we read uh, uh, urban urban development, there's called yeah. the, cent the center periphery theory. Basically, you have the center where everything takes place, and then you have the periphery, which kind of and the center decides for the whole world. So when you look at it from an economics perspective, you have New York, London, Tokyo, right? So if you look from an economics perspective, you have New York, London, Tokyo. Those are the cities in which the economic balance of the world gets decided. Of course, there are other entities and things as well, but we mainly look at, at those things. Like the New York Stock Exchange has kind of the biggest influence on, on everything. Like it's, it's, it's so preposterously yeah. big that- Any industry, basically. Yeah. It's not so, just the oil, I guess. It's any industry. So, it's any industry. so if, if you understand that, you have to understand that if you really- are interested in being part of the center, you have to start and go there and invest. Like whether it's investment in actual cash, it's investment in, in knowledge, investment in, in resources, 
that's if if you want to be part of the biggest and it's also the most competitive. So it's not like I'm going to go there and I'm going to get successful. No, it's the most competitive markets. It's like the most insane markets. Everything moves 10 times as quick as you're used to. So that's something F people don't understand is either. It's, it's, it, it's how the movement is, but also the quality of the movement. When you mention how to be like, I'm not sure if I'm using the right word, the, the best kept secret, right? Being mm -hmm. the best kept secret around the periphery. So how can a best kept secret, secret thrive? A best kept secret can thrive through making decisions that improve the, the, the way of life, the state of life, the quality of life, and at the same time, not go into much into over, what was the correct way of using word? Yeah, overselling itself. So let's let's take it from a VC perspective. You have some you have some companies that go into a bidding round for venture capital, and they promote oh, yeah. themselves as the newest, most amazing company possible, and they get all the funding. They get millions of dollars of funding, but they can actually produce and develop what they've promised to all those, those funders. And then after a couple of years, something happens, they're not able to respond to it, and they kind of lose everything. I mean, these are real-life cases that happen. Like, and I'm fairly wary of that. I'm fairly well aware that I could come with a product that get people to buy it heavily, and it could fail, and I would have tens of thousands of people looking at me and saying like, hey, you brought me into this. It's your fault and you're responsible for this. That's one of the things you have to, if you want to make it big, want to get extremely large international fame, that's one of the main concerns, especially with a company that is in a new industry. People see it as a buzzword. Everyone wants to buy it, but you don't have the actual knowledge and experience to do it. Like it's, it's, it's the same kind of situation. As we go to the last quarter of this episode, I want to lighten it up a bit and go back to the roots. Oil and gas or the oil industry has been kind of crucial to the development of basically the economy, technology, society in general. Why is that? What's so the let's, magic let's of oil and gas? No, again, like, can, can you rephrase it or, yeah, or, or gift? Yeah. Yeah. So basically society has developed at a rapid pace since we found a way or, or mankind has found a way, you know, to use cash as, as an energy source. Yeah. And it's been the most easily produ produced type or extractive. And there's been a whole industry built around it, right? And alternatives are popping up versus, because it all comes down to energy. And you, you got this, the renewable movements now, with water powered, but not every region has that part. You can't really transport that. Solar is another thing. It is the, the efficiency there is different. Wind is another thing. It's very region specific, but all oil, you can transport to anywhere, use it anywhere. So that's how I see why it came the like the, the, the preferred, basically you can store and package and transport that energy more easily. 
So I've, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. And like, I don't have the technical background to answer that question. That's, that's why I, I don't. And I was trying to see if whether or not there's a, a way of, of explaining it, but I think you yeah, the value. I think there's yeah, I'm also, trying, yeah. I'm trying to abstract it. Why? Yeah. Society in general gravitated toward oil because in essence it's energy, right? And newer forms of energy have been yeah, created, but it also like, has another function, right? Uh, There's still a connection. Is there is still a connection to oil and the US state USA state reserve? I would guess so, yeah. Because but but before that, understanding that the 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 oil and the reserve of the U.S. It's it's basically that oil was already being used as you know a way to fuel energy and and the economy, and basically, and this is pure speculation, you know, the the, the U.S. has a lot of oil reserves, and they're basically extracting and controlling, just as the U.S. dollar, where that gets extracted, etc. But movements like alternative forms of energy like nuclear have been kind of also debunked while it is more efficient with newer research that has been done but because of other risks you know people still gravitate to the tried and true benefits of oil oil yeah there's also and that's something that we should also take into consideration it's also been duped that oil will be the main source for the next maybe 15 years. And after that, it will kind of slowly move away. Yeah. I, I, I personally don't see the reserves drying up soon. I, no, I it's personally... not about the reserves drying up. It's about, and, and okay, so I'm going to give a hot take. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is what we're here for. Yeah, I'm going to give a hot take. I'm not sure if you're noticing. But there is a new world order on many different economic levels. Yes. And the first, the first place I realized it is when it comes to the FIFA. Because yes. I'm a man of sports. Yeah. So I'm noticing that... Am I thinking about the same thing you're going at? Different. different. I'm, I'm oh. thinking about the bids for the World Cup. And how many bids have gone to countries outside of the outside of Europe? Mm-hmm. Like the UEFA, the 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 European uh, countries had much much bigger grip on FIFA in the past than they have now. So that's one thing that's worth noting. But I also see it in the ownership of teams that you're seeing that more and more teams, sports teams, are being owned by non-European owners. You're also seeing it in the sponsorships of teams and the logos and the companies that actually sponsor certain teams. But if you really want to see it, you should only look at Formula One. And how much money gets put into Formula One, and how many races are outside of the outside of Europe, and then you can even go to the UFC, 
and see how many events are being hosted outside of Europe. And so when it comes to the new economic powers, there are not a lot of new economic powers going around. And you can see that there are different Middle Eastern countries that have a say in things now that they didn't have beforehand and that buy into different kind of industries more. You're seeing the BRICS and the OPEC claiming certain amounts of power and making certain decisions. So it's really important to look at the OPEC countries. It's important to look at the BRICS countries and the role they play within the, the decisiveness of, of certain industries in the world. And that wasn't the case previously. So there's a kind of old money, new money situation going about. And that's an interesting development, especially in the oil field and oil and gas as well, on how much the price of oil, a barrel of crude oil, is being impacted in the world economy as well. Yeah, because... That is basically the, the reason the U.S. maintained that power because they enforced it being priced in a certain amount of U.S. dollars per gallon, right, per, per, per barrel. And these other superpowers are, from my understanding, trying to detach from that. And then you, you get the, the economic dynamic. So... So geopolitically, the hot take is like there are different countries taking over different parts of the world. And that brings major change in how things were previously done. Okay. And expanding on that hot take or my counter take is I don't see it happening yet within the next decade or two even though there's a lot of movement. So in some sense, some sense things go quicker than they used to go, and some yeah. sense things move slower. And I mean, I can see it because I'm in a relatively new field with social media. And I can see the impact, the improved impact, because we haven't even talked about the next generation of wealth. Like, right now there's one Mr. Beast. But 20 years from now, there will be 2,000 Mr. Beast. So that's something you have to take into consideration now. True, true, true. And, and, I, so, the, and philanthropy, the, the philanthropy that Mr. Beast does is completely different from the philanthropy that Bill Gates does. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because Bill Gates is still relevant today and will be relevant in the next 20 years. Even when they're 2,000 Mr. Beasts, Bill Gates will still be relevant. Yeah, it, when it comes a, to things not it's a different quick, type of impact. Yeah. yeah. And just like the, the, the rise to, to fame, it's, it's a slow burn. It's nothing moves at all and then suddenly everything moves at once. Once you have that catalyst moment. But yeah, on, on a personal side, I, I don't see, see that happening. On, a, on a, another, to end on a fun note, if you're talking about, you know, opportunities and how much we're dependent on extractive industries here, like the smallest nation in the world, I think it's Tuvalu, 10% of their national income 
come from royalties from Twitch because of the .tv domain. So take, take a second to let us sink in how these different radical types of industries impact a small country like that. Are you saying that we should sell the .sr <laughs> to, to the U.S. for their seniors and take royalties from it? Well, it's, it's an option. It's an option because it, it just so happens that the, the, the abbreviation for Tuvalu was TV and Twitch.tv became so big because it is one of the, the big entertainment domains. They get royalties from that because domains are assigned to countries now, right? Oh, because of the, the you know assignment that, of the... You know that Eminem promoted one of his albums through Shady.sr? There we go. That, that, that's some crazy opportunities that, you know, on, on other fields that are creative, so creative ways to basically get, get the income flowing. But yeah, so, that, that, that was just a point that I got this past week and I was like, oh, that, that is interesting. But so yeah, really interesting discussion. So, 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 so the reason I'm bringing this up and this is worth the research. So. A couple of albums ago, Eminem promoted his latest album through Shady.sr, right? And it was probably done through somebody. And if you go to Shady.sr now, you get to ShadyMusic.com. And it's not affiliated with Eminem or Shady Records anymore. But it used to be. Someone clearly banged on it. Clearly banked on it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave that to the domain authorities. All right. This was a very different, but interesting topic to discuss about because from individuals, us mainly who, who aren't as involved in the field, it's always good to have discussions in other fields, around other fields where your not domain expertise, also to understand like how you yourself, but also how other people might perceive it and what kind of impact it can have on, on the, the broader spectrum. And yes, the, the, the money flow is very narrow now, but curious to see how that will play out in the next two, three decades with Guyana, especially, and are we going a, you know, the, the, the same footsteps as our other Latin American neighbors or not, but only time will tell. Can't predict the future. We can only, you know, play the cards we're dealt, dealt with. But with that being said, keep up to date with the developments. That's the only way you'll, you'll survive. Keep learning and keep listening to social convos. Follow us at Instagram at convos, C-O-N-F-O-E-S and subscribe to our YouTube channel at Diego Amirali or just search uh, social convos and you'll just find a channel right there. With that being said, chat look us out. Thank you for an interesting episode. Diego, thank you for listening in. If you've listened in through the recordings, remember that we always upload new recordings to streaming service at the end of the month. And if you want to catch us live, don't forget to subscribe to Diego Amarali's YouTube channel. This has been Social Convos. We'll see you back next week. Simply, same time. Bye-bye.